Welcome to Carl Chin's Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author, Professor Carl Chin, honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising that there were sinners as well as saints. Today I'm going to take you on a walk around Centenary Square. Now I know what you're thinking, how the heck is Carl going to fill a programme with just walking around Centenary Square? Well I will do and stick with us because we'll show you how important this small plot of land has been to Birmingham's history. Broad Street in 2015 and what an excitingly busy thoroughfare this is filled both by day and night with people flocking to it. Standing here where it begins, by the bridge over the Paradise Circus Queensway and looking across to where the old Central Library is going to be knocked down, I'm surrounded by eye-catching buildings. Across the way is the imposing International Convention Centre. Within it is Symphony Hall, stunning in the simplicity of its veneered wood decor. This is the only place in Britain designed to modern specifications for the needs of orchestral concerts. In between me and the ICC is the Birmingham Repertory Theatre, which is now connected to the iconic new Library of Birmingham, a stunning structure that has become one of the most popular tourist attractions in the United Kingdom. Wherever you look in Broad Street, the new Birmingham grabs your attention. From the dark glass windows of the Hyatt Hotel to the refurbished Crown Pub, from the canals packed with pleasure boats to the pavements crowded with visitors, and from the revitalised Gas Street Basin to the bustling and impressive developments of Brindley Place, where offices, shops, restaurants and homes have brought to life what had been a desolate landscape. But amidst the symbols of modern Birmingham, there remain buildings that proclaim our industrial prowess and remind us of the importance of manufacturing, even here in Broad Street. Take the Brass House pub as an example. Now, I've come just below the Brass House pub, by the canal, under the tunnel that connects Gas Street Basin with the National Indoor Arena behind me. There's a narrowboat going past me as I stand here talking with you. Let's think about the importance of canals and manufacturing. For centuries, Birmingham shook to the banging of hammers as smiths forged and fashioned metal into things of beauty. And what could be more beautiful than Bromwich and brassware? Bedsteads, light fittings, picture frames, telescopes, toasting forks, dog collars, letterway machines, umbrella tubes, and much more besides. You name it, we made it. And from 1781, it was here on Broad Street that zinc and copper were melted to produce the alloy that was essential to bronze brass founders. Across Broad Street, and between the Hyatt and the Gas Street Basin, there used to be another modern pub in an old building with a historic connection. This was the Glassworks. Once the site had belonged to Abraham Cutler, whose name is today recalled in the firm of Pearson Cutler. Their business was founded in 1815, and today it is well respected for its high-quality replacement windows, conservatories and doors. But Cutler wasn't the only glass manufacturer on Broad Street, because also here was the chandelier business of Rainsford and & Son, and the famed factory of F & C Osler. In 1851, Osler's created a magnificent glass fountain down which water flowed, and which was the centrepiece of the Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace in London. 
An American called Elihu Burritt exclaimed that this feature was a gorgeous stalactite, a fairy fountain, which was the most impressive, attractive, and best remembered object at that exposition of British manufacturing skill and ingenuity. Oslers crafted much wondrous glassware, like the two exquisite crystal glass candelabras which hung over the tomb of the Prophet Muhammad. They so impressed Prince Albert that he commissioned a similar pair for himself and Queen Victoria. Yet Oslers wasn't the only noted manufacturer on Broad Street. There were many more. Indeed, Broad Street could be regarded as Birmingham's preeminent industrial quarter, for in the 1850s there were 60 firms here that used steam engines. That was a greater number than anywhere else in Birmingham and many of those prominent manufacturers were found in and around what is now Centenary Square. So now I've walked a few yards back to Centenary Square, to just outside Baskerville House, which stands to the side of the Library of Birmingham. Striking in its flooring of red bricks, Centenary Square is an Italian-style piazza and is the largest public open space laid out in Europe since 1945. Yet there is little here to highlight the manufacturers who once dominated this area. Yet there is one thing, a piece of public art in front of Baskerville House itself. The artist is David Patton, who was born in Birmingham in 1954, and his monument was placed in Centenary Square in 1990 as part of the ICC Percentage for Art scheme. It is comprised of six columns of Portland stone, on each of which is a reversed bronze letter. Together, they spell Virgil, the name of the Roman poet celebrated for the Aeneid, a Latin epic poem telling the legendary story of Aeneas, the Trojan who escaped the fall of Troy and went with his companions to Italy where he became the ancestor of the Romans. This wonderful sculpture is called Industry and Genius. So what is the connection between it, Virgil and Birmingham industrial genius? The answer is John Baskerville, after whom Baskerville House is named and who is acclaimed in this tribute to him because the letters are in the Baskerville font named after him. So, the next question is, who was Baskerville and why should he be honoured and remembered? Well, in an age when Birmingham's princes of industry gained renown throughout the world for their amazing wares, John Baskerville was amongst the most celebrated of them all. A most talented and artistic man, he made his fortune through effecting an entire revolution in the process of Japanning that's making goods black and glossy through the application of an hard varnish. He then perfected his own former type and printed on his own presses magnificent editions of the most famous works of the most acclaimed writers. So superb were these books that Lord Macaulay exclaimed that they went forth to astonish the librarians of Europe. Born in 1706 in Wolverley in Worcestershire, Baskerville's family were small-scale farmers. It's said that whilst he was young, he became a footman to a clergyman in Kings Norton, where he also helped his employer to teach the local poor youths to write. Thenceforth, words and letters became the passions of his life. Aged 20, Baskerville moved to Birmingham, settling in a yard in the upper part of High Street, where he taught writing and bookkeeping. Two years later, he was also cutting gravestones, and according to Samuel Timmins, in this trade, he showed in a marvellous manner the form and style of the letter he afterwards delighted to produce. By 1733, Baskerville's running a writing school in the Bullring and living in New Meeting Street. The beauty of his penmanship was celebrated. William Hawke Smith exclaimed that he possessed an exquisite taste for ornament and proportion generally, 
and this caused him to excel in all his various pursuits. During the 1840s, Baskerville lived in Moore Street. Here, he became involved in Japanning, imitating the imported lacquer work from Japan and China. Some mystery was attached to the trade, and in the words of Joseph Hill, Baskerville was said to have acquired the secrets of the craft surreptitiously. Be that as it may, Baskerville was no mere mimic. He was also an inventor, and in 1742, he took out a patent for a style of making metal mouldings and of rolling, grinding, and japanning metal plates. After varnishing, the mouldings were used in making picture frames and all kinds of ornamental furniture. Baskerville also intended to Japan flat plates and metal for use in objects, now usually veneered with ebony, whalebone, walnut, mahogany, pear tree or otherwise. His process would make the goods more beautiful and durable, and in all respects, answer better. This was the first patent for making metal mouldings by passing them through rolls of a certain profile, and it emphasised Baskerville's ingenuity. His innovation and his ability to employ highly skilled workmen ensured the profitability of his business, which he carried on for most of his life. A wealthy man through his own efforts and not through inheritance, Baskerville was a colourful eccentric. He wore bright clothes and was often seen in a green coat with narrow bands of gold lace, a scarlet waistcoat trimmed with gold and a small round hat. Whilst he rode in a carriage, the panels of which were japanned and which was drawn by two cream-coloured horses. He stood out. And Baskerville's lifestyle also attracted attention, much of it sadly unwelcome. His partner was Sarah Eves, who had been born into the wealthy Ruston family, who recalled today in Ruston Street, nearby in Ladywood. She was married with a son and two daughters, but her husband had deserted her and fled the country after he'd been found guilty of fraud. Mrs Eves became Baskerville's housekeeper until the death of her husband in 1764, soon after which she married Baskerville at St Martin's in the Bullring. Despite the opprobrium of the small-minded, Sarah was praised by the visitor C. Lichtenberg as an excellent woman. It is apparent that she was also intelligent and hard-working. In 1766, Lady Shelburne came to Birmingham and wrote in her diary that Mrs. Baskerville showed her the Japanim operations, which business she has chiefly the management of. I've come to the side of Baskerville House, Across the way from me is the Copthorne Hotel, and behind me, just below me, is Summer Row. Why have I done so? Well, by the 1760s, the Baskervilles were living at a pretty place out of town. This was a splendid house on Easy Hill, so-called because its slopes were gentle or easy. And that's where I am now, on Easy Hill. We don't even realise that this was a hill. But those easy slopes are still visible where I am now, looking along towards Summer Row, the sand pits, and further along the road to Dudley. And they're certainly gentler and easier than the slope leading up from the River Ray through the Bull Ring and up New Street to the Council House on the ridge above Birmingham. Baskerville House, of course, now stands on the site of Baskerville's home. This was a little Eden for him and his wife. Its nearest neighbour was Bingley House, later brought to mind in Bingley Hall, and more on that in another broadcast. As such, Easy Hill was in a decidedly rural location on the outskirts of Birmingham, and it was set in eight acres of what was described as rich pasture land in high condition, part of which is laid out in shady walks, adorned with shrubberies, fish ponds and grotto. Easy Hill was visited by Dr Alexander Carlyle, who averred that... Baskerville himself was a great curiosity. 
His house was a quarter of a mile from the town, and in its way handsome and elegant. What struck us most was his first kitchen, which was most completely furnished with everything that could be wanted, kept as clear and bright as if it had come straight from the shop, for it was used, and the fineness of the kitchen was a great point in the family, for there they received their company, and there were entertained with coffee and chocolate. During this visit, Carlyle saw Baskerville's printing press, and that's why I've come back to the sculptural tribute to him. To the creation of this press, Baskerville had devoted several years of his life and a large amount of his wealth. This press was crucial for the realisation of his dream to create an incomparable form of type. But unlike so many dreamers, he realised his dreams to such an extent that Joseph Hill admiringly declared that the true character of Baskerville was stamped in the critical period 1750 to 1757. Then it was that his undaunted determination to attain perfection was shown. In his high regard for excellence, he is comparable with Matthew Bolton. It was at his home on Easy Hill, now part of Broad Street, that from 1750, John Baskerville devoted himself to creating that incomparable form of type for printing. And he did it. In the preface to his edition of Milton's Paradise Lost in 1758, Baskerville himself explained that... Amongst the several mechanic arts that have engaged my attention, there is no one which I have pursued with so much steadiness and pleasure as that of letter-founding. Having been an early admirer of the beauty of letters, I became insensibly desirous of contributing to the perfection of them. I formed to myself ideas of greater accuracy than had yet appeared, and have endeavoured to produce a set of types according to what I conceive to be their true proportion. To complement his new type, Baskerville built his own paper mill, also at Easy Hill. He made presses with brass parts instead of wood to allow for smoother working. He used brass for the stone or bed on which the type rested. He pressed his paper between hot copper plates immediately after printing to give it a high gloss finish, and he developed a fine black ink. It would also seem that he was helped by John Handy, a craftsman who made the punches, and Robert Martin. This skilled man may have been a printer before he joined Baskerville, but as it was, after his employer's death, he continued the type founding business for Sarah Baskerville before finally setting up on his own. At last, in 1757, Baskerville was ready to print his first book. It was a beautiful quarto edition of the work of the famed Roman poet Virgil. Hence the name Virgil on the sculpture, industry and genius. This was followed by Milton's Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, Aesop's Fables and the Poems of Horace. The next year, Baskerville was appointed printer at Cambridge University, for which he printed a Bible and a book of common prayer. His type was thinner and clearer than that which had dominated printing previously, whilst his ink was darker and so stood out more on his bright paper. Baskerville had no wish to mass-produce books, but to print, as he stated himself, such only as are books of consequence, of intrinsic merit or established reputation, and which the public may be pleased to see in an elegant dress, and to purchase at such a price as will repay the extraordinary care and expense that must necessarily be bestowed upon them. Unhappily for Baskerville, his devotion to creating an elegant and simple type was not matched by the desire of princes to use it, they regarded it as too costly. Despairingly, he wrote, It is surely a particular hardship that I should not get bread in my own country. And it is too late to go abroad. After having acquired the reputation of excelling in the most useful art known to mankind, 
while everyone who excels as a player, fiddler, dancer, etc., not only lives in affluence, but has it in their power to save a fortune. However, one person who was deeply impressed by Baskerville's type was Benjamin Franklin. Hailed as one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, he was a brilliant man whose inquiring mind mastered all that he contemplated. A politician, scientist, inventor, statesman and diplomat, he was also an author and a printer, to which trade he described himself as belonging. In 1760, Franklin came to Birmingham and called on both Matthew Bolton and Baskerville. Shortly afterwards, the American wrote to his printer friend in supportive terms, although he put forward the opposition of the many towards Baskerville's prints. Let me give you a pleasant instance of the prejudice some have entertained against your work. Soon after I returned, discoursing with a gentleman concerning the artists of Birmingham, he said you would be a means of blinding all the readers in the nation, for the strokes of your letters, being too thin and narrow, hurt the eye, and he could never read a line of them without pain. I thought, said I, you were going to complain of the gloss on the paper some object to. No, no, said he, I have heard that mentioned, but it is not that. It is in the form and cut of the letters themselves. They have not that height and thickness of stroke which make the common printing so much more comfortable to the eye. Disillusioned as he was, Baskerville pulled back from printing books until the later 1760s, by which time he was gaining a high reputation in Europe. He died at his house at Easy Hill in January 1775. His achievements were immense, as Samuel Timmins pronounced. Great as the triumphs of the art of printing have been, and numerous as are the laurels which Birmingham has won, there are few nobler chapters in our local story than those which record how, in a material and commercial age, John Baskerville made our town famous throughout the civilised world for the production of the best and greatest works of man in a style which has rarely been equalled and even now has never been surpassed. So what happened after Baskerville's death? His widow put up for sale his printing office with its type foundry and materials. The price was the immense sum of £4,000. In his history of Birmingham, William Hutton fulminated that it was to the lasting discredit of the British nation that no purchaser could be found. In the Commonwealth of Letters, the universities coldly rejected the offer. The London booksellers understood no science so well as that of profit. Instead, in 1779, the life's work of Baskerville was bought by the French Society for Typography and Literature to produce the complete works of Voltaire. Two years later, the celebrated French printer Pierre Didot praised Baskerville in glowing terms. It seemed that taste had walked by the side of the Birmingham man, for... He banished the use of all these ornaments. Simplicity is the most perfect image of true beauty. An atheist, Baskerville had directed in his will that he should be buried in a conical building on his estate, where his mill had stood. He wrote his own epitaph. Stranger, beneath this cone in unconsecrated ground, a friend to the liberties of mankind directed his body to be inhumed. May the example contribute to emancipate thy mind from idle fears of superstition and the wicked arts of priesthood. After Baskerville's wife died, their house was bought by the wealthy Ryland family, who owned much of Lady Wood. It was burnt down during the priestly rites of 1791. 
And then, in the 1820s, the house and land was levelled for making canal wharves. Baskerville's coffin was then found standing upright. The body had not decomposed and the teeth were perfect. Sadly, the corpse was almost made a show of until Mr Knott, a kindly bookseller, placed it in one of the vaults at Christchurch at the top of New Street by Waterloo Street and remembered in Christchurch Passage today. When that church was knocked down at the end of the 19th century, Baskerville's body was removed and buried beneath the chapel of the Church of England Cemetery in Warston Lane in the Jewellery Quarter in Birmingham. This building in turn was later demolished and the vaults were bricked up. Today, Baskerville's genius is recognised internationally. His books are treasured and through them he made Birmingham a centre of excellence in book printing. For each of his works was inscribed on its title page with the words, Birminghamii, Typus Johannes Baskerville. He was the man who brought a claim to this town as a lodestar for typeface and books of beauty. Industry and genius, the sculpture dedicated to Baskerville, stands between Baskerville House and the Hall of Memory. And that's where I've stepped forward to now. I'm in front of the entrance to this hallowed building. It's one we all pass and we're all aware of it, but how many of us have actually been inside it and how many of us know anything about its history? Well, the foundation stone was laid on Tuesday, June the 12th, 1923 by Edward, the Prince of Wales. It was the first time that he had visited Birmingham and it was an event that drew tens of thousands of working class people to the streets to cheer him as he crammed in as many engagements as possible in a little over 12 hours. Aware of the tough times that were causing distress to so many, the Prince had asked that no public money be spent in decorating the streets to celebrate his appearances. None was, but along the 34 miles of streets that he traversed, local residents and workers had taken it upon themselves to put, according to a journalist, schemes of adornment of effective and impressive character. The day began with a civic welcome in the town hall. In reply, the prince trusted that he would gain some knowledge of your aspirations and your activities, which will not only enable me to realise why the name of this city is known throughout the empire, but will be of service to me in afterlife in studying the problems which all my generation will have to face. Of course, Edward was doomed never to reign as king because of his love for a married woman. But then, as a young man, he was loved by many ordinary people for his concern for the unemployed and for the veterans of the Great War. Indeed, in his response to the Birmingham people, he referred to the institutional factory for the training of ex-servicemen, which he was going to inspect. The Prince expressed his hope that the employers and trade units of Birmingham would do all that they could to find vacancies for the trainees. Thence he set off from the Town Hall to see as much of Birmingham as he could. According to the Manchester Guardian, everywhere he went he passed through avenues of a cheering populace who threw flowers and waved flags and at the different works masses of the employees hurrahed and with an enthusiasm that left no doubt of the immense popularity of the visitor. At Fort Dunlop, an excited work girl thrust a black cat for luck into the prince's hands, after which he chatted with men who had received the Victoria Cross and others who had lost their legs or arms in the service of their country. As well as visiting numerous factories, the prince set in motion the machinery of the corporation's electricity supply station and went to Hansworth Park, where a huge throng of wolf cubs gave him their fierce grand howl before he went on to inspect the British Legion. In the midst of all this activity, 
The prints laid the foundation stone here at the Hall of Memory. Which will enshrine the role of honour of the many thousands of Birmingham's sons who died in the war. He did so with a silver trowel and an ivory mallet, tools that were beautifully designed and executed at the Central and Victoria Schools of Art. Thousands watched respectfully and strained to hear the prince declare that the memorial would stand to symbolise to generations to come all that Birmingham stood for during a period of great national crisis. Work of every kind unflinchingly given, compassion to the sick and wounded, courage and resources in adversity, and, above all, self-sacrifice, dedicated as it was to the immortal memory of the heroic dead. The area chosen for this place of remembrance was towards the top of Broad Street and close to its junction with Easy Row and was given by the corporation. It had been part of the grounds of the home of John Baskerville, but in the early 19th century, it had been cut through with canal arms between which the land was filled with factories, wharves and commercial buildings. Some of these were cleared for the building of a memorial worthy of the city's war dead. And there is no doubt that Birmingham people had indeed played their part to the full in the Great War. They had turned out a multitude of munitions so vital to victory and over 150,000 men had answered the call to fight. Sadly, 35,000 of them were wounded and 12,320 were killed. Their fellow citizens were resolved that these men would never be forgotten. Soon after the First World War had begun, the Lord Mayor, Alderman W.H. Bowater, had inaugurated a roll of honour to commemorate the Birmingham men who had fallen. These names were recorded at the Lord Mayor's parlour and soon the feeling grew that there should be a more permanent memorial to them and those that fell after them. In 1920, designs for a Hall of Memory were invited in a competition for Birmingham architects only. It was won by S.N. Cook and W. Norman Twist, both of whom were ex-servicemen. Through a public subscription, over £60,000 was raised for the clearance of the site and the building of the Hall of Memory. The demolition was carried out by Martin Changaretta, an Italian Brummie who had lost a son in the war, whilst the builders were John Barzian Sons and John Boner Sons, who mostly employed local men. Construction was finished in 1925, and on July the 4th that year, the Hall of Memory was opened by His Royal Highness Prince Arthur of Connaught. On that solemn occasion, a huge crowd assembled to pay their respects at a building erected to the glory of God and in memory of the men and women of this city who fell in the Great War. Two wreaths were later placed inside the Hall of Memory. Both were presented by the town of Albert in France, the first in 1926 and the other in 1933. They read, to the children of Birmingham who fell in the cause of right and liberty from the people of Albert in gratitude. As I look at the Hall of Memory, I'm deeply affected by its octagonal shape Portland stone, low dome, pierced by a single light in the crown. It is entered through massive cast iron doors by which I am now standing and it is flanked by four bronze statues. These were the work of Albert Toft and they symbolise the contribution made to the war by the Navy, Army, Air Services and women. Here, inside the Hall of Memory, is a shrine which supports a bronze casket. Within it lies a magnificently inscribed and illuminated First World War Roll of Honour, designed by Sidney Metillard of the Birmingham Central School of Art. After 1945, a Roll of Honour was added for those who died in the Second World War. 
and across the hall of memory is a third roll of honour which contains the names of those citizens of Birmingham who have died in campaigns since 1945. On the walls are three bas-reliefs designed by the local artist William Broy. They indicate different aspects of the Great War. The first is call and shows men leaving home to join up. It records that of 150,000 who entered the call to arms, 12,320 fell, 35,000 came home disabled. The second is front line. It depicts a party of men in the firing line and it bears the powerful words, at the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. The third portrays the wounded and maimed coming home. It states simply, yet movingly, see to it that they shall not have suffered and died in vain. May it be so. Carl Chin's Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com. Come.